Welcome to Radio Physics, a collaboration with the Aspen Center for Physics, KDNK Community Radio in Carbondale, and advanced physics students from Roaring Fork Valley High Schools. The students spend a week working at the center during the summer and get to talk one-on-one to some of the distinguished physicists who are here. I'm Patty Fox, and I'm hosting today's program, which was recorded during the teen summer program at the Aspen Center for Physics. With me today are Matt Rigney and Quinn Ramberg, rising seniors from Aspen High School. They will be interviewing Aparna Baskaran, Associate Professor of Physics at Brandeis University. Professor Baskaran is a theorist interested in understanding the dynamics of soft materials far from equilibrium. That sentence alone will need some explanation. She is presently focused on understanding active materials such as self-propelled colloids in vitro cytoskeletal filament systems. Field and shear-driven colloids, another class, and granular materials. I did look up colloids, and I do understand that colloids are particles in suspension that cannot be filtered out. So thank you, Aparna, for being here. And Matt will begin with the first question. Hi. um, Can you start us out with a brief overview of what you do and what your field is about? Okay, that's a pretty broad question, but let me uh, try to think how I would answer it. So what I get excited about, the reason I get out of bed in the morning, is that I care about dynamics. What do I mean by that? If you have a glass of water that's just sitting on the counter, then I have a theory to describe what the dynamics of the molecules of the water would be at the temperature at which the water is, and it's just sitting there, and I know what its pressure is, and I know what its viscosity is, and things like that. But now supposing you stick a spoon and stir the water. That's a dynamical state of water where I'm pumping energy into the system. Then what is the mathematics that would describe the state of matter when you're putting energy into the problem? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So that class of problems, you take any material, and you drive it, put energy into the system, and ask, can I describe it mathematically in a self-consistent way? That's basically what I do. And I think about this. So this is a very hard problem, depending on which um, material you're thinking about and how you're driving it, the math turns out to be very different. And so you have to pick your battles. So I've picked a few battles. Those are associated with the, um, these things that are called active materials, which are basically biologically inspired materials. When we think about what we are doing, we are consuming energy in the sense that our cells are burning ATP. The ATP comes because I ate breakfast, right? But then that consumption of ATP drives all kinds of complex processes in us, right? It cells are dividing so that they can heal wounds, various other things are happening in my body, and so on. So you're driving the material in a particular way. That is, you're driving it at the microscopic scale, and something else happens at the macroscopic scale, and you want to try to understand where that goes from. Of course, we're very far from understanding how Aparna's breakfast transforms into the words that comes out of her mouth, but we can, you know, form simpler subset of problems and study them. How do active soft materials kind of correlate to like animals flocking, gathering, swimming? Yeah, so the way to think about it 
would be as follows. So um, I I have birds or bees or whatever that are moving, right? So they have consumed some energy and that's resulting in some motion in the medium. And assume, and this is a reasonable assumption, that any bird only talks to its neighbors. So I am a bird in a flock of a thousand birds, but I can only see or realize what's happening about six birds around me. Right. But the flock as a whole across the scale of thousand birds is going somewhere or doing something. Right. So what I have is local input of energy, namely each bird is moving, local interactions, namely that each bird is only talking to its neighbors and then something happening on some much larger scale. In that sense, if you imagine the cytoskeletal filament suspensions or something like that, there is a motor protein here that is consuming some ATP and pushing on this guy. This guy pushing on a few other guys in its neighborhood is all the interaction. So the energy consumption is local and the interactions are local, but something happens on the scale of the material. The whole thing starts moving or the whole thing starts doing something weird. Right? That is the mathematical sense in which flocking of birds is equivalent to an active driven soft material. So is there any way that your work or your understanding, how would how would that affect our world in the future or our society in the future? Like what is the payoffs of your work? Okay. So for any scientist, there are uh, real world goals in the sense that things I would probably do before I die and holy grail goals, which if they happen, the world will be transformed. Right. So let's start with some real world goals. Real world goals are associated with things like supposing you had a fluid that would flow spontaneously, flow on its own without you setting up a pipe and a pressure gradient to drive the fluid. Then you can imagine many, many applications for something like that where this fluid will flow on its own. Does that make sense? Yes. And for a fluid to flow on its own, it has to generate its flows itself. So you have, you put this energy uh, in the form of molecular motors or whatever it is that is propelling the fluid that organizes and the fluid starts flowing on its own, right? And uh, so that would be something that's practical and possible. This will happen. We, will, we have self-flowing fluids that we have made out of these energy-consuming materials. And presumably at some point, we'll figure out a way to actually practicalize it, give it to somebody who can put it in a device. Right. So in that category, what you can do is you can make materials that will do things on their own. Right. You don't have to do stuff to them. Does that make sense? One of the things that uh, a cartoon picture that I imagine in my mind is to say that I have some um, motors or something. Uh, what I mean by motors is molecular motors. I'm thinking about stuff that is gotten from the brain of a cow or something like that, not real motors. But I can use those to build a macroscopic motor. I can build a motor that will turn. If I could do that, then that is fueled by ATP. ATP is what you get when you eat something. So I want my iPhone to be powered by my Apple Peel. That would be cool if we could do it. So those kinds of things. But the holy grail goal this would be the holy grail goal, is that all of biology is within this active material class because all of biological systems consume energy at the microscopic scale and do something at the macroscopic scale. So what one could do by understanding this class of non-equilibrium systems is try to understand the rules of life. How does all of the complicated phenomenology of life emerge 
from the physical reality of little molecules consuming ATP and doing something and then that cascading up to me opening my mouth and talking to you, right? So the holy grail goal would be that all of this will give us insight into biology. And it will give us insight into biology two ways. One would be that it would help me figure out how to fix things when things go wrong. This is the approach that some people take when they're trying to study cancer metastasis and stuff like that from the physical perspective, where you're trying to fix things, right? And the second thing would be that you could actually make life. If you, if that would be great. If you could figure out the rules, then you can build it, right? So those would be the holy grail objectives. What do you do on a regular basis? So when you're studying and when you're trying to figure this out, what are you doing? The way that in general research proceeds is that there is thought and then there is work. And I do some amount of work myself, but mostly I don't do anything. I have graduate students and postdocs and very smart collaborators who do the hard work. So what I usually, the fraction of my time is divided into, let's say, one third or less than that of just thinking have a pen and paper in front of me and think or read. Other people have thought and expressed their thought in the form of journal articles or uh, publications of various sorts. So you read to see how they are thinking and that will help you understand phenomena that people have already understood. The rest of the two thirds of my time, I'm processing information. What I mean by that is I talk to my graduate students, I talk to my postdocs, I talk to my collaborators, and they tell me what they are thinking. And we think together. Does that make sense? That's usually the uh, division of labor. Um, Does there tend to be a lot of overlap between your field and biologists? Do you work hand in hand a lot, or does your work affect their work, but you never really work together? This is, again, not descriptive of my field because my field consists of people at both ends of the spectrum. There are people like me who like to talk to biologists uh, but don't actually work with them because the biology is too messy. I'm a pen and paper theorist. Everything has to be a spherical cow. So biology is not a spherical cow. So even though I talk to them for inspiration for building my spherical cow, I don't actually do any biology. But then there are people in my field at the other end of the spectrum whose research is entirely driven by phenomenology that is directly observed in biology. So then they really are like intimately tied with the biologists and, you know. So both happen, but I'm at the other end. I'm a spherical cow person, so I look at the real world to draw motivation for building my spherical cow, but after that I shut the world out. What are you saying, spherical cow? Uh, The spherical cow is the physicist's idea where you say that, okay, I want to model a bunch of cows that are walking down the street and it has legs and mouths and brains and whatnot. I don't care. They are a bunch of balls that are rolling down the hill. That would be the kind of model building that physicists do. To first level understanding of objects moving, forget about the legs and the face and whatever. It's a sphere that goes around. It's not an expression I've ever heard before. It's a... It's the go-to thing that you imagine as a theoretical physicist where you say that if I'm trying to model a cow, but forget about the cow. For my point, it's a sphere. It's going down the street. (laughs) I'd love if you could talk about the self-propelled colloids and how you use those as an application to your research. Um, So 
the self-propelled colloid started out as a theorist's imagination because that was the spherical cow active matter system where you say, okay, there's a sphere and you put an arrow on it and said it goes along that arrow. That's the simplest thing that you can imagine. And it turns out that this simple, very, very stupid conception leads to all kinds of complicated things that come about uh, macroscopically. So they aggregate, they form swarms, they do various other things like that. So once this theoretical conception of a spherical cow was made, it would be nice if you could build a spherical cow in the lab. And a bunch of people have done that. So one of the ways that the spherical cow was built was to say that I'm going to take a colloidal particle. A colloidal particle is a particle that is micron-sized that you suspend in water. These colloidal particles are made out of a polymer called PMMA. And I'm a theorist, so I couldn't tell you what PMMA is uh, if I had to expand it. It's some polymer, polymeric material. And on one side of this, you stick a piece of platinum. And then you put this inside um, hydrogen peroxide. Then what happens is that the platinum cat catalyzes hydrogen peroxide into water. Right? So the hydrogen peroxide is getting converted into water on one side of my colloid. That sets up some flows. And what that does, it ends up propelling the colloid in the direction, in a particular direction along that axis. So you basically built the spherical cow in the lab. And once you build the cow, you test all of the ideas that the theorists have been cooking up and see if it works or not, right? So that's the game that's being played. <laughs> um, can you tell me what is your favorite part about the field? And then to contradict that, what is your least favorite or the most difficult part about what you do? I don't know how to phrase the answer in the context of my field. So I'm going to phrase the con uh, answer in context of my worldview, like the way that I'm thinking about things. So what is fun is that anything can happen. So we have developed over the last 200 years rules of the game associated with what can or cannot happen in a material. Okay, Those rules are called thermodynamics. That's the topic. Right? Now, all of those rules are out the window because those rules were built for materials that are there by themselves, not materials that are being driven at the microscopic scale. Since you don't have any rules, anything can happen. That's exciting, right? Because the rules are completely out the window and you don't know what the new rules are. You don't have any expectation. Like, so you're always constantly surprised. So that's the good part. The bad part is that there are no rules. So there is nothing to guide my intuition or tell me how to, I mean, is it, should I do this in order to get that? Or should I do this in order to get that? So there's no um, framework to guide my thought process. So even though the constant surprise is exciting, it's really frustrating because there are no rules and okay, all of this must have some overarching rules or something associated with it. I don't know what they are. So we are like these blind people feeling the elephants. You guys have heard that story, right? I feel the tail, I feel the leg, I feel the trunk, but we are all feeling the elephant, but we don't know what the elephant yet. That's pretty frustrating. So how do you know where to start when there's so many places to? Um, the way that it usually works is that you read something or you hear somebody tell you something and then you say, ah, I wonder how that would work if I did this, you know, changed it in one particular way or something like that. Then you go and try to do the calculation or the simulation or the experiment and see what happens. And then that leads to a natural trajectory that it takes towards understanding. That's one way. And the other way is pent up frustration over 10 years will eventually, you know, 
push you in one direction so that's the experience directed thing both happen um and then with these ideas of yours how long do they take to be tested or be like to have an experiment happen for these ideas and how often like how many ideas do you come up with like in a year is it like one that you just focus on throughout a whole year or are you like constantly like switching ideas like oh maybe we should try this or change this or so there are two parts to the question the first part is frequency of ideas let's say that was actually the second part but let's start there um so you usually pursue a few different things in parallel so you you uh, the way that i think about it is that i can and think about water by saying that okay i am interested in understanding water flowing down a pipe that means that i don't have to know about hydrogen bonding or the molecule or any other such thing i only need to know about the density field and the momentum field and stuff like that and i can perfectly understand water flowing down through the pipe that's the macroscopic view then there's a microscopic view where you say that i want to understand water at the level of the molecule i want to understand how the hydrogen atoms are jiggling or how the oxygen atoms are jiggling or something like that right and uh, so what you you take the microscopic view and ask questions at that level right when in the context of active materials you can imagine a microscopic model you can imagine that oh i have a rod like particle and maybe it's going back and forth along its axis and now i'm going to put a bunch of them together and ask what happens right this way you're imagining a microscopic model and then asking what are the possible consequences of that particular microscopic model the other uh, approach is to take a completely macroscopic point of view and you say that okay i have a material that has these conserved quantities or these symmetry properties or something like that and what can this material do or not do so you what you do is you have three or four microscopic models floating around and a few macroscopic theories floating around and you just go forward on them and some of them work some of them don't and so on so you know that's the way it works and in terms of testing in experiments my field is particularly good in the sense that we have some very very smart experimentalists so once the theorists imagine whatever it is that they are imagining they hate us for doing it but they'll make a way to <laughs> try to test it make a model in the lab to test it so uh, but uh, the time scale between the idea coming up and the testing can be it's a broad distribution so sometimes the experiment even precedes the idea sometimes the experiments follow the idea really quickly or sometimes it takes a few years to get there that kind of thing have you ever had two ideas kind of overlap and help you understand each of them oh definitely always all of ideas that look distinct at the beginning of uh, your exploration turn out to be the same idea after a while mm-hmm. so that happens a lot and that's very satisfying right because you're seeing some universal thing where you could think of it this way and you could think of it that way and it's still all the same that's exciting when that happens but it does happen and not often enough to actually make me a happy person but uh, <laughs> <laughs> um how often do you, well when you're thinking or coming up with these ideas as a theorist how often do you work with people are you normally coming up with ideas while you're sitting next to someone or is it just you in a room just with your thoughts it's a little of both some ideas are born in isolation when they are never actually born in isolation they are stimulated by all of the things that you have been exposed to but they come up in isolation 
But for me, most of the time, ideas come when I'm talking to people. So when I talk to my graduate students or talk to my postdocs or collaborators or anybody, when we think out loud on the board and then you don't know who came up with the idea because it's like it's the part of the conversation that naturally emerged from there. So that's, that's actually quite a nice way to get there. And physics is very much like dominated by men. Do you, often, do you find that? like weird for yourself or are, do you have a lot of women in your field of study? So uh, I'm lucky in the sense that I'm born in a generation where this is not such an issue. Um, my I have had women mentors growing up. You know, I had a, a postdoc advisor who was a woman and uh, I had uh, female students in my group when I was a graduate student. And in my department, we actually have the highest fraction of women with respect to physics departments in our area, in um, in physics in the Boston area. So it's not that isolating. And you have a tendency to not have your gender identity in your head when you're thinking about physics, right? So it's it doesn't, I don't think it plays a role. Okay, so this is a bit of a broad question, but how did you get interested in physics? Like, when did you know you wanted to become a physicist? And what made you pick the field you're in now? So when I was young, so when I was in high school and stuff like that, the only thing that made sense was math and physics. People did not make sense. Life did not make sense. Absolutely nothing made sense. But physics and math kind of made sense. So, I mean, if you start out to understand something, you actually understood it. While on the other hand, why do you like this boy or that girl or whatever did not? So it was it was my comfort zone, physics and math. So then I went to college and uh, statistical mechanics was very exciting. When I, I had my first Eureka moment in a stat mech class when I, oh, I actually understand something, that feeling. Then, you know, I was just pursuing that feeling and I stayed in the stat mech area after that, it's a question of what you're exposed to, right? I heard something and I had an idea from there or uh, my uh, postdoc advisor gave me a particular paper and said, what do you think about this? And I thought this paper is nonsense. And I spent three years trying to understand that paper and finally understood, oh, that paper is profound, that kind of thing. So it's just what you're exposed to. And how did you get to where you are now? Uh, clarify the question for me, Quinn. How did you become a theorist and have this whole team behind you? As in my career path, mm -hmm. series of accidents, I think. So um, I, I, I'm always a theorist in the sense that, as I said, math makes sense to me. And I'm, I cannot do anything with my hands. I mean, pretty much even writing is marginally all I can do. So experiment was not something that was within my um, possible states let's say. So I was a theorist from when I was born, more or less. And then um, in terms of getting to where I got, I did my PhD with uh, Jim Dufty at the University of Florida and had a lot of fun thinking about granular materials and so on. And at some point he said, okay, enough is enough. You have to leave. And we had a conversation about what should I do? And he said, oh, you should go for a postdoc and it has to be selected by what gives you the biggest uh, opportunity and not by your quality of life. Because I chose my graduate school by quality of life. But for postdoc, he said, I don't care if you have to sleep under the bridge, you have to go to the place with the most opportunity. And Christina Marchetti, my postdoc advisor, kindly hired me. And she's a superstar. 
with you know a zoo of ideas and so on and an excellent mentor then she took care of me for three or four years and we did a bunch of work and so on and then it was again time to stop being a postdoc and i would have loved to have been a postdoc forever but uh, apparently that is not acceptable so you know i had to go out and find a job and brandeis university kindly hired me and there was a woman playing a starring role in that as well bulbul chakraborty was the chair of the department when they hired me so they hired me and then it was like i didn't know what i was doing and didn't know where the bathroom was for 2 3 years but then eventually things worked out and it's fine <laughs> So we are running low on time here. So do you have any um any like tips you would give us future physicists on what we should do and what we should focus on as we grow up? I think you should follow your your instincts. What I mean by that is that all of us are wired in different ways and the way we are wired is determined by our life experience to date. so there are things that come easily to some people and are equally hard to another person and some things that are very hard for one person and very easy to the other so you can always see what comes naturally to you what feels comfortable what you're able to do most easily and spend your time doing that better and better and that's pretty much all you need to do and you'll be perfectly fine and physics is fun and it's very very wide there are many 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 questions to be answered and many 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 different skill sets that are required to be able to answer the questions and all of us possess some subset of the skills that are necessary so we should you know use those skills and answer the questions that are best adapted to those skills then you'll be happy Thank you so much Aparna and then you'll be happy and that is so important to follow your your instincts and your dreams and your wishes and that will make you happy. Good advice. So thank you so much Aparna Baskaran, associate professor of physics at Brandeis University and Matt Rigney and Quinn Ramberg who are headed toward physics majors. Thanks to Mark Whitley, their great their great physics teacher at Aspen High School. So thank you for listening to Radio Physics.